Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Monica, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. And today is Friday, the 11th day of July, 2014, and today we are reading from the big book. We are in the chapter, Working with Others, and we are on page 91. We're going to start with the last paragraph, when he sees you. And today's readers are the 12 Steps, Miriam, 12 Traditions, Renata, Esther C., Chelsea, Karen M., And the share code for yesterday, Thursday, the 10th day of July, is 6632. 6632. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and the 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. And I will now ask Miriam to please read the 12 steps. Thank you, Monica. Hi, everybody. This is Miriam, compulsive overeater, living in the solution one day at a time, calling from Israel. The 12 steps. One, you admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we are entirely ready to have God remove all these effects of character. Seven, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons with harm and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted. Eleven, thought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice this principle in all our affairs. Thanks for letting me share, and I pass. Thank you, Miriam. I will now ask Renata to please read the Twelve Traditions. Hi, thanks Monica for your service. Hi everyone, this is Renata, Recovered Compulsive Overeater in New York. Twelve Traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, 
a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous accepting matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group will never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policies based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personality. Thanks and I will pass. Thank you, Renata. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinent requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinent requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. And once you're done sharing, let us know by saying pass, then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, Everyone's phone, except the speakers, should be muted. Today we are resuming our study in the big book, in the chapter, Working with Others, on page 91, the last paragraph, When He Sees You Know. And I will ask Esther C. to please begin our reading. Good morning. My name is Esther C. from Canada, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. When he sees you know all about the drinking game, commence to describe yourself as an alcoholic. Tell him how baffled you were, how you finally learned that you were sick. Give him an account of the struggles you made to stop. Show him the mental twist which leads to the first drink of a spree. We suggest that you do this as we have done it in chapter in the chapter on alcoholism. If he is an alcoholic, he will understand you at once. He will match your mental inconsistencies with some of his own. So this this paragraph describes to me the part of my conversations with newcomers where either the prospect identifies in or or doesn't. I mean, honestly, I've never had to go out there, you know, wherever out there is to find 
compulsive overeaters or to ask professionals of any kind because it seems today in 2014 that I'm surrounded by people who have problems with food and uh, more often than not I'm the one who's who's approached people are are going to notice you know my obvious weight loss or they'll often see the food choices I make people who are even closer to me will see how I've changed as a person um, people sometimes see me bringing my own food along with me, and they'll ask me, and we'll talk about, um, you know, I, I simply, I simply tell them that I had, a, you know, some problems with some foods, and this is the way I eat now. And sometimes, if that's their story too, then they'll, you know, share some about their excesses with food. A lot of people, uh, you know, have done that, but still, at this point, even a non-compulsive overeater, you know, who might be what the big book calls a hard drinker, a hard eater, they, they they might still relate because lots of people have abused food or overeaten or eaten too much junk food as kids or or some you know, or on occasion. But this this paragraph describes that point in the conversation where they identify in. Because at this point I would talk a little bit more about my struggles to stop eating compulsively and all the things that I've tried. And this is a point where I would speak about um, how the compulsive overeating started to ex- affect every, negatively affect every aspect of my life. That there wasn't a part of my life that wasn't being impacted by the by the obesity and by the compulsive overeating. And this is the part of the conversation where I tell them that nothing I could do to get would get me to stop. That there was no um, there was no uh, no amount of suffering or self-control, or will, or desire for things to be different that was able to get me to stop eating compulsively. And I would tell them that even the times where I would stop eating the foods that would trigger me, that even brief or longer periods of abstinence, this is the part in the paragraph where it says, um, we, um, get, show him the mental twist which leads to the first drink of a spree. I would say that even when I would put down the foods that that caused me cravings or that caused me to eat compulsively, that that even after long periods of abstinence, and I remember being off some of my binge foods for for about eight months, even that wasn't enough. And I, I would describe the mental twist, and I would describe that feeling of, got to get it, got to get it, got to get it, got to get it. And it's at that point where something in their face will register that that they too have been there or not. I remember very well a conversation with someone who also for years had, had been overweight and wanted to lose weight, and, and, and we're having this conversation, and, and at that point she says to me, you know, I just didn't want to buy new clothes anymore, so I figured I'd better just lose the weight. Otherwise, you know, all that money I spend on clothes is going to go to the garbage. And so that's that was enough to motivate her. The financial uh, aspect was enough to motivate her to get herself together and, and start eating better and lose weight. So it's clear that she didn't relate to any of the other things that I just described, the you know, the mental twist, the struggles to stop. But often, I, you know, in the rooms and even out of the rooms, once that person says, yeah, that happened to me too, then they will, he, it says here, they will match your mental inconsistencies with some of their own, and they'll start to tell me their stories of the things that they've struggled, uh, uh, areas that they've, ways that they've um try to um, implement changes in their food in order to control the eating and d- different uh, things that they've tried or different ways that their lives have been affected or how miserable they really are. Um, and this doesn't even apply only to people who are overweight. There are many people who seemingly wouldn't have a lot of weight to lose but also talk about you know, how their lives have been affected by the compulsive overeating. So 
so this is this is the part of the conversation where either things light up or you know or, or not and and then you know after that I we could talk more about you know what what I've done or or what over you does not is about but again that's what this paragraph described that pivotal moment where you know either they get it or 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 they don't and I thank you for allowing me to share and that I'll pass. Thank you, Esther. And would anyone like to comment on this paragraph? This is Katie F. Katie, go ahead. Good morning. This is Katie F., a a recovered compulsive overeater in Virginia. And, you know, I, for myself, when I first met uh, people in these rooms and they described their eating and I saw that there was other people that were like me, I was so thrilled to know that I was not the only one who, who was like this. And so I have to remember that when I'm talking to other people, um, just like Esther described, is to, to, share, um, to share the things that I did with the food. And, you know, at this point in my life, I've been um, at a maintenance weight for, you know, over 25 years. There, there's just a handful of people who remember me ever being overweight, um, but they do see me eating, um, you know, different from other people. And when I say, you know, well, I used to, you know, weigh close to 200 pounds, you know, their mouths drop. And and then um, if I see that they're more, um, that maybe they they are interested in this way of life, you know, I'll describe more and more and more. But um, you know, we want to carry the message that there is a way out of that um, way of living, that they don't have to stay there. And, you know, it says if he is alcoholic, he will understand you at once. Um, and so, so much of the time we're just planting seeds. And, you know, it, it, if I recounted all the people that I have told my story to and I've shared with, and dwelled on the fact that I have no idea where they are today, you know, I, I feel like a failure. But as much as, um, you know, we are recovered and we want to share the message, the purpose also is to stay clean myself and to remember. When I recount those um, incidents, then I am uh, assuring myself that I will not go back there because I um, – you know, your character defects, they tend to regenerate. You go through the steps, and I am not suddenly, you know, a completely different human being than I was born. Um, so I can easily fall back into being restless, irritable, and content. And there's nothing that assures me of staying out of that place um, than recounting the misery that I lived in day after day in disease and that's what we do when we share a newcomer you know and they think that they're so unique and they're so different and they're so worse and on and on uh, identifying out if I can help them to identify in then they have a chance of recovering and with that I'll pass thank you Katie and I would like to remind everyone to please keep your phone muted if you're not speaking and would anyone else like to share on this Berta. paragraph. Larry. 
Bella, can I share? Okay, I heard Larry. I heard Bella. I heard someone before Larry. Herda. Spell it, please. B as in boy, E-R-T-A. Berta, okay. Berta, Larry, and Bella. Berta, go ahead, and then Larry, you're next. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Good morning. My name is Berta, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Illinois. <laughs> With this paragraph, um, letting them, letting the newcomer know uh, what my struggles are as a compulsive overeater, what I find is easy for me to do is to compare myself to a normal person in some way. And what a lot of times I will, I will explain to someone that a normal person eats a lot of food on Thanksgiving Day, but they're not like me because they aren't planning uh, binging on the leftovers the next day. You know, my leftovers never made it to the freezer. Uh, normal people go to the grocery store, and they put the groceries in the car, take them home, and put them away. I don't do that because I'm not normal. I go to the grocery store, and this and the sack that has all my uh, addictive foods in it, that goes in the front seat with me so that I can eat on the way home because I can't wait to get home to eat the food. Examples like that, are, I find it helpful for me to relate that. Uh, and, and diets, uh, everybody goes on diets. Well, most people do sometime in their life if they have a weight problem. But uh, I didn't go on a diet once in a while. Every Monday morning of my life, as far as I can remember, was another diet that was going to fail long before Friday. And uh, I'm just very grateful to be recovered and that I know that I'm not a normal person. And uh, I, I think by sharing that with people, if they can relate into what I'm saying, they're going to understand that, that I'm not normal and maybe they'll realize that they're not normal either. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Berta. And Larry, you're up. Thanks, Monica, for your service. Larry, <clears throat> recovered compulsive reader from Chicago. So when I speak to a newcomer um, who's willing, after all, you know, earlier we, earlier we read, you know, they, you know, that we have to do, you know, some qualification there. Um, but if I, if they're willing, after I've learned, you know, a bit about their experience, you know, I'm going to share some of my struggles. You know, how this disease had me by the throat. You know, how baffling it was that, you know, as hard as I tried, I, I couldn't stay stopped. And I give them an account of the struggles I made to stop. You know, every fad diet imaginable, you know, for decades, um, the, the Sunday night vows. <laughs> this, and this time I mean business. I'm, I'm not kidding this time. You know, the pills to control my appetite, a new relationship, a new job, a geographic solution. You know, uh, compensatory behaviors. For me, you know, obsessive exercise, liposuction surgery, the self-help books that would line my bookcase. You know, all these things in the interest of staying stopped. They made sense to me. And they may have worked for other people. They didn't work for me. You know, the list goes on and on. I mean, 
And for someone like me, as sick as I was when I came into this program, I'll share with them, you know, none of this worked. And you see, there was always this curious mental phenomenon, you know, this strange mental twist that, that accompanied my sound reasoning to stay stopped. I, 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 when I told you I wanted to stay stopped, I meant it. I wasn't kidding. And yet I always had some insanely trivial excuse for taking that first bite. You know, there was, there was just no defense against that first bite. It was like a steam engine, you know, just a locomotive that, you know, that you, I mean, there's no stopping it. And my sound reasoning failed to hold me in check. You know, uh, the insane idea won out in the end. It was like I was a slave to the food. And usually when I speak honestly and openly to, to the newcomer in this way, you know, they understand. I can see it in their eyes. I, I can hear it in their voices. They, they understand. And when they do, they, then they, they think to themselves, as I did, you know, wow, this, this, this guy understands. He gets it. You know, he may, he may look like he's in a, a normal body, but, but obviously he understands what it was like. And that's, that's the identification thing. That's the, the huge uh, part of this stuff. And, um, you know, we have an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. And uh, the obsession of the mind keeps us coming back again and again. Thank God to Alcoholics Anonymous that in this process, this practical program of action, that I that obsession's been lifted. That obsession's been lifted, and I stay on the beam of recovery. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Larry. And Bella, you're up. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Bella, and I am a thankful recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, Monica, for doing this service, and thank you very much, everybody on the line. Give him an account of the struggles you made to stop. This is the beauty of the program, that we are at the same level. We are coming from the same, from the same place to be compulsive overeater, and we are coming with the same struggles. It's not a program that me as a recovered, thank God, I am better than the newcomer. It's not a program of I am a teacher and you are the student, or I am a therapist and you are my patient. No, not at all. We are at the same level. And it's such a nice thing when he says um, struggles to stop. It's not one struggle. It struggles to stop the compulsive overeater. It's not in a one, two, three. Yes, it's a struggle. And it's so important that the newcomer should feel that he is accepted and he is understood, even though he is, a, in, he is still in, 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 the, in that place that, yes, I was there too. I understand what he is talking about. Yes, I know what it means to go to the to the food when when I am angry, upset, disappointed, etc. And also from the other hand, I remember when I just started the program and once I was talking with my sponsor and my sponsor said, Oh Bella, you know, I am going through this too and I was looking at her and I said, What? You mean that even though you are my sponsor, you are going through this too? And it brought me to, to, 
to feel accepted, to feel respected, to feel, yes, we are human. We are human. This that I am recovered, it doesn't make me perfect. No, I am not perfect. I am human. And it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling also for the newcomer and also for me as a recovered person, thank you, God, that it doesn't make me a perfect one. It doesn't make me to a person without limitations. No, I am still a very thankful, happy uh, human being. Thank you for letting me share and I pass. Thank you, Bella. Would anyone else like to comment on this paragraph before we move on? Well, this is Monica, and I'm going to jump in here for a little bit here. Tell him how baffled you were, how you finally learned that you were sick. Baffled. I was so completely baffled by this disease. Um... I, I, it just, you know, I, I just couldn't ever figure this out. It just had me. It's like, Monica, you're a smart woman. You've been successful at everything else. Why can't you get this figured out? What is wrong with you? You're lazy. You're a loser. You're a, you're weak-willed. What, what's your issue here, Monica? Got a big L on your forehead? You know, that's the way I thought. It's like, what is wrong with me here? Why, you know, why can't I just use a little more determination here and get this figured out? And then I came into these rooms and how you finally learned you were sick. You know, it was a relief to me to learn that there was a physical aspect going on in my body and a mental aspect going on in my body. That was causing this, that I had a disease. It wasn't my fault, but I have it. And it, it just gave me a lot of relief to know this. And these recovered people were telling me, we've got a solution, Monica. And you won't have to be baffled any longer. If you want recovery, do what we've done. And... Um, so that's what I did. And today, you know, it's not baffling. But it is, it is terribly, terribly baffling. You know, when you continue to do the things you don't want to do, and you can't do the things you want to do, that is unmanageability. That is baffling. Totally, completely powerless. And with that, I'll pass. And let's move on to the next paragraph. And Chelsea, could you read for us, please? Hi, Monica. Thank you for your service. This is Chelsea, covered compulsive overeater for today. If you're satisfied that he is a real alcoholic, begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. Show him from your own experience how the queer mental condition surrounding the first drink prevents normal functioning of all of the willpower. Don't at this stage refer to this book unless he has seen it and wishes to discuss it. And be careful not to brand him as an alcoholic. Let him draw his own conclusion. If he sticks to the idea that he can still control his drinking, 
tell him that possibly he can if he is not too alcoholic, but insist that if he is severely afflicted, there may be little chance he can recover by himself. And so this part of the text now is teaching me um, where I am supposed to come from when I bring this message to somebody and what my posture should be when I do that. And it says a number of things here. First of all, if I'm satisfied that he's a real alcoholic and I have instructions at this point of the work, I have gotten instructions on how I can determine. There's many places in the book to determine that, that gives us information on how we can determine if someone's a real alcoholic or if we're a real alcoholic. And there are several places that point to that um, throughout the book when it talks about that at certain times we're unable to bring um, into our consciousness with sufficient force the classifications. Um, I think they're on page 20, those classifications. And then um, on page 39, probably uh, good information that told us about uh, the actual or potential alcoholic, without exception, I'm paraphrasing here, without exception would absolutely be unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge, the stories, the different things. It points us back to the chapter on alcoholism, uh, more about alcoholism, which deals with our mind, the greater part of our disease. And then what really um, stands out to me here is that it says, begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady, to dwell on it, to really hone in on it, to focus with laser precision, to really get hone into that um, particular part of the malady. Remember, we have a spiritual malady, and the manifestation of it, the bottles, the symptoms, the bottles, it says here in the book, are the symptoms, and then we have the allergies. So what I try to do, and it says to show, from, show him from your own experience, from your own experience, how the queer mental conditioning condition surrounding that first drink, and therein is the problem, as we talked about in the other paragraph, that first drink is the issue that prevents us from normal functioning of the willpower. So what I try to do is to talk about my own desperation and all my different self-deceptions and experimentation, the hopelessness of it, the hopelessness about how many times I tried to stop, um, about how many different things I did and different um, um, experiments, trying to eat only organic, trying to purge it out of me trying to um, only eat at a certain time of the day or, or all these other different, again, the experimentations and the self-deceptions. I go through them, and I try to talk it in terms of like it's a twofold illness without getting into that language because these, um, <clears throat> excuse me, these um, people are not at this point, if you're face down in the food, you're not really interested in this book or anything. You're not interested in hearing a, a bunch of stuff about, um, you know, the steps and this and that. You're just interested in knowing how can I eat everything I want to eat or how can I eat, purge, not eat or whatever and not suffer the repercussions. Because when I knew, when I was face down in the food, that's what I was interested in. I could care less about this book. I didn't want to hear anything about that. So I try to speak in those kind of terms about how I couldn't stop 
Once I started eating, for example, if I, if I said in the morning I was going to have a, a day where it was only going to eat foods from a certain type of dietary plan, but I ended up at the Chinese food store, followed by a stop at the nearest pizzeria, followed by a stop at the nearest deli, and then just in case I got a little peckish, I would stop at a restaurant along the way, so that way I could have enough stuff to, you know, hold me over, at least until I could get home, you know, or the 90 meetings in 90 days, something like that. I'll say, oh, I went to a whole lot of meetings and everything, or I was able to stop for a while, but then I would explain that I couldn't stay stopped because I couldn't stop from starting again no matter how much I tried and all the different plans I um, put out there. So I try to keep it in real layperson's terms and everything. And I try to um, really know this book. This paragraph also speaks to me that I should be affiliated with my book because my job now is to be of maximum service. And that means to have people to be of service too. How do you attract? Because we're supposed to be attraction, not going out pummeling people over the head with this. So I try to keep this book in my heart, the words of the book in my heart. To me, that's what language of the heart means, having this, these words in my heart so that way I can speak wherever this individual's at because it had said earlier that he'll match us, he'll match your mental inconsistencies, it said, with some of his own. So I will have heard some information about this individual because I will have listened this time because it wouldn't be all about me. I would have been selfless coming with love from the heart. So I would be able to turn around and put myself in this individual's shoes to know what it is to love thy brother as thyself. And then I would speak the words from the heart. And that comes from this book and studying it and living it. So then I'm able at that point to hit on these different topics so that the individual can buy in. Because if they don't become sold on these ideas, it's just a lesson in futility with me sitting there talking and everything. But it's not my job to sell them, to force, force them to, to take what I'm selling. I can lay it at their feet and they can either pick it up. But I need to give it the best shot I can when I'm giving it out. And it has to be selfless. It has to be without self. So that means stay into the book. And then I wrap everything up with the freedom, with the grace. And I say how, how freeing it is to be able to be around my binge foods and not even want them and not begrudge somebody else having them. And then I say how grateful I am that I can go anywhere. Man, it's so cool living free. This, is, this turns out to be the softer, easier way. Who would have thunk it? And then people listen, and they get comfortable. And then at that point, who knows? That's up to their source greater than themselves what the outcome will be because I can't control outcomes. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you so much for being here today, and thanks for your service. Thank you, Chelsea. And would anyone like to comment on this paragraph? Kim? Alex? Yes, this is Amy. Leia. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! Meow. Meow. <laughs> I heard Kim. I heard uh, Leia. I heard a male voice after Kim. Who was that? And Amy. And uh, yeah, okay. But I heard a, a guy. Oh. Alan. Alan, okay. I knew I, I heard. Kim, Alan, Amy, Leah. We'll start with that and uh, then go on. Kim, go ahead. Thank you, Monica. And I love your laugh, Monica. It makes my day. Um, good morning, all. My name is Kim G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. If you are satisfied he is a real alcoholic, begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. 
this is interesting. If I am satisfied that he's a real alcoholic, that sounds like qualification. You know, I like to look at our third tradition. It says, the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. So anyone who comes into, into Overeaters Anonymous is a member. If you have that desire, you're a member. But I want to read the long form, the long form of the, of, of the third tradition. Our membership ought to include all who suffer from alcoholism. Hence, we may refuse none who wish to recover. So that's what we're doing here. We're trying to figure out, is this, is this a moderate drinker? Is this a heavy drinker? Or is this a true compulsive overeater? And I'm trying to find that out because if someone does not have our problem, I don't need to spend time with that person because maybe they can stay sober on, on meetings. Maybe they can stay abstinent just on fellowship. Maybe they can stay abstinent just going to, to a conventional diet program. What I'm looking for is the real compulsive overeater. So if I'm satisfied that person is that real compulsive overeater, the person like me who cannot stop regardless of how much the desire or their wish, so how am I going to instill that in them? I begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. Chelsea talked about being sold on this idea. At this point, what am I selling? I am selling the hopeless feature of the malady. The best description I ever heard of step one is, oh crap, I'm screwed. So I am going to sell that idea that they're hopeless. I'm going to sell the idea that if you have this allergy to the body, if you can, when you ingest certain substances, you can no longer reasonably predict how much you're going to have. That is a permanent condition, a permanent disability, and that sucks. But let me tell you, I have other allergies. I have a severe allergy to penicillin. I have a severe allergy, and I know that if I ingest that again, it could have dire consequences. But I don't need to go to Penicillin Anonymous. That, that allergy is academic because I have sanity around the idea I do not consume penicillin. The true hopelessness, the feature of my malady with food is that regardless of how long I haven't had that substance in my body, which means I am no longer having the allergy. I am no longer physically craving it. If you have the food down for three, four weeks and you want that food more than anything else, that's not a craving. That's the obsession of the mind. And the hopeless feature of malady is that mental condition surrounding that first drink. My inability to have sanity around the idea that if I ingest those substances, if I participate in those behaviors which create the phenomenon of craving, I will be unable to stop. But that mental twist is the real reason I come to Overeaters Anonymous. That is the reason I have this hopeless feature of normality. If I have an allergy to the body which will never change, permanent disability, and I have the mental twist which will not allow me to have the sanity to not take that first drink, I am screwed. So if I am satisfied that they're the real compulsive overeater, so I am qualifying this person, I am leaving my story, I am leaving breadcrumbs to find out if they can identify in with that allergy to the body obsession of the mind. And then I'm going to drive it home so that I can then sell them on the, on the uh, solution in the program of action. But if I do not sell them on the need for this program, then they're not going to pay attention to me. So what I am selling at this point is the need to submit to the 12 steps. So once again, if, I am, if you are satisfied he is a real alcoholic, 
begin to dwell on the hopeless future of the malady. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. And Alan, you're up. Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Alan. I'm a compulsive overeater. Thanks for being here. Um, a page, uh, this passage is one of the pages that really sticks to my memory. Um, as far as the, the precautionary measures on, on communication with others and doing that 12-step work. And, you know, I think when I initially came in and when I first started working with the sponsor, a lot of that communication style was geared towards how do I talk to newcomers? You know, how do, how do I share my experience with them? Um, but then I think an experience that many of us have, the longer we're abstinent, um, you know, through taking your meals to uh, to Thanksgiving or Easter or, you know, my family's case, we, we get together like twice a month with my in-laws and, and the extended family. And, and I always, I never eat my mother-in-law's cooking, which could in itself be a point of contention, but I've always got my own meals and, you know, I don't eat the same things that people eat at weddings. And I, and I'm in, in that age group where I go to a lot of weddings these days. And, um, you know, so long story short, you know, I get to communicate and do what I think of as 12-step work with a lot of people who aren't newcomers and a lot of people who um, do approach me about my food and what's going on. And typically, I like to think that it's the people who are sort of hyper aware of, of eating situations and food that notice what I'm doing is different in the first place. But I, I really had to to take this advice in, uh, from this passage pretty to heart because I've learned that you can really stigmatize yourself. Um, you know, for the first couple of years, my only goal was to be as honest as possible with people. Um, and that was good for me. That helped me come out of my shell. That helped me really, really do step one in a big way. But, and a lot of times it would, you know, when you use words as compulsive overeater or food addict or eating disorder, um, with people who who aren't from these rooms, uh, it usually ends the conversation there. There's a lot of stigma with those terms. There's a lot of lack of understanding. And even though I'm doing a really good job of being honest, I'm not doing a very good job of connecting with that person. And, you know, realistically, the, those are labels. Those are medical diagnoses. Those aren't descriptions of behavior. Those aren't descriptions of feelings. Um, and I'm not really doing those people any good. So today, you know, I think back to some of the, the first advice I got from my sponsor five years ago. Um, you know, I focus on, on the things that are probably common between a lot of people that struggle with food, whether or not they are a flat-out food addict or, or if they just have binging issues or whatever their problem is. But, you know, I try to focus on the fact that, you know, I eat foods today that make my body feel good. You know, I've learned that when I eat certain foods, I can't stop eating them. I don't feel full. I start to just want more of those foods. That doesn't really put me in a healthy place as far as my, my hypertension and all these other things, my cholesterol. And I try to focus on eating foods that make me feel good and make me feel safe. And that I've learned over the years that when I listen to my body and then I try to remember from experience that I can't eat certain foods without feeling crazy and just feeling ill. And I find that a lot of people can really relate to that. And I'm able to just promote the the ideal that it's okay to focus on eating foods that make you feel better 
and it's okay to avoid eating the same food that's in, in the room that everyone else is eating. And I find that, it, you know, even though that's not directly related to these rooms in the moment, that helps connect my disease to a lot of people out there. And I'll pass. Thank you, Alan. Amy, you're up. Hi, Monica. This is Amy. Can you hear me? I sure can. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for your service. Sorry, I didn't mean to yell earlier. I've been having trouble with my phone. I wasn't sure whether I was being heard, which is funny. If I'm muted, yelling doesn't matter anyways. But (laughs) anyways, um, if you are satisfied that he is a real alcoholic, begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. And then, of course, down below in this paragraph, it says, let him draw his own conclusions. So if others have, as others have stated, you know, we cannot brand them and we cannot decide for them if they see themselves as a compulsive overeater. I mean, I, as a recovered uh, possible sponsor or future, future sponsor, I may be satisfied that this person that I'm talking to is a real compulsive overeater, but they may not be. And uh, again, as I said, my job is to carry the message and to describe from my perspective my experience and what the hopeless feature of the malady was for me, and to describe the, the, the development of this mental obsession and this queer mental twist and how hopeless and the futility of my trying to stop of my soul. And that when it came to willpower, that I was, my brain was warped. And just it was constantly explain, explaining from my own experience. I was never to draw the conclusion for them. I was to never point a finger at them to say, well, you must be I was to allow them to identify in through my experience and then describe what it is that happened, what it was like, what happened, and what it is like now. And it says here, you know, but insist if he is severely afflicted, there may be little chance that he can recover by himself. And, and usually when I run into someone who thinks they still may be able to control their eating or, you know, they want me to sponsor them but they're balking about certain things or certain steps or committing their food or something like that, I always revert to this idea that, well, look, you may be able to do this, but if you are as severely compulsive overeater as I am, again, never pointing a finger, always speaking from my perspective, then there's got to be little chance. I just know from my own experience, all I can say in my humble opinion, honey, is that if you want to go do it your way, you are welcome to do it. God bless you. But if you are like me, And the beauty of how this whole process comes out is what did I start with? I started with letting them identify in. I drew them in by identifying with my experience. And if they truly identified with my experience but are balking at doing certain things, don't you think they're going to think about it? Because when I say, well, if you're anything like me, which they already said they had if they've identified in, then there's no other way out. There's no no way out because I was screwed. As Kim put it so so succinctly, I was screwed, I was hopeless, I had nowhere else to go. This better work, and it did. So if you are like me, then, you know, this might be the only solution for you. And that's as far as I would go. And the beauty is that for me, I can say from my experience, is that when I came into the program, I needed this program a lot sooner than when I was willing to actually work it. And the same proves is that, you know, OA is like the mafia. You know, once you're in, you never get out because you know too much. And the beauty of people that work the process this way and identified, helped me identify in, but didn't 
didn't try to force me to decide, didn't point a finger at me and tell me I was a compulsive overeater. Every time I binged after that, I would think to myself, wow, I wonder if what they're saying is right. Maybe I am a compulsive overeater. And then the next binge would be like, wow, I'm feeling so powerless. I tried so hard, you know, to not be in front of the Amy, you're breaking up. We can't hear you. Oh, okay. Can you hear me now? Yep. Yep. So anyways, that experience helped me based on just them sharing as this process is laid out. It helped me decide for myself. And ultimately, that's what I had to do. That's what we have to do. We have to make that decision. I am who I say I am. I am a real compulsive reader. That's the beginning of this program for it to work. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Amy. And Leah, you're up. Thank you so much, Monica. It says, show him from your own experience how the queer mental condition surrounding that first drink prevents normal functioning of the willpower. Show him from your own experience. So my book tells me that, um, you know, the pain of my dark past, my experience is going to become my greatest possession that I have. And this is where I get to use that experience, you know, because sitting across the table from that um, still suffering compulsive overeater, standing in a meeting, you know, I begin to share that um, I could not learn from the consequences of my experience, that I could not connect the dots. You know, when I would begin to think about taking that first compulsive bite, that first bite, I could not bring into my mind the suffering and the humiliation of even last night. I could not remember the tears that I had when I went into bed after a day of binging. I could not remember it. I couldn't remember the humiliation. I could not remember the frustration. I couldn't remember the mental torture. Why can't I remember? You know what I mean? (laughs) Why can't I remember? Why can't I learn? Why can't I know? You know, why can't I see what's going to happen? Why don't I remember? Why can't I connect the dots? I mean, I'm not the brightest bulb in the chandelier, but heck, you know, (laughs) I'm, I'm decently bright, you know, I'm not stupid. I have a decent memory. If I burn my hand on a hot stove, I remember that I burned my hand on that hot stove. I don't deliberately stick my hand into a flame and see if my flesh is going to melt. You know, so this is where I get to start uh, dwelling in on this part, that even knowledge about my disease, even reading books about my disease, even the painful consequences of compulsive overeating was not enough. I just became a smart compulsive overeater, but that had no effect on me, you know, because that mental obsession would take possession of me without my consciousness and without my permission. So no matter, even if I had uh, a great necessity, which I did, threats of divorce is a great necessity. And even if I had great wishes, And I had great wishes, and I had medical necessities. I was a young woman. I was obese. I was suffering from medical consequences. I had high cholesterol. I had high blood pressure. I had shortness of breath. 
I was experiencing mental torture. I thought I was going out of my mind. I had suicidal thinking. I had deep depression. I would cry real tears. I would scream out, what's wrong with me? Why do I eat like this? Why can't I stop? I would make vows. I would make promises. I, would go, I was going to change. I swear, I swear, I swear, I'm going to change, I'm going to change, I'm going to change. And that night or the next day, I would make a decision to take that first bite as if it's the best decision I could ever make. You know, that is the baffling nature. That the only thing I can remember at that moment is the sense of ease and comfort I'm going to get. The idea of what it's going to do for me crowds out what it's going to do to me. I cannot connect the dots. I have a defective mind. I am suffering from an obsession. And so when I sit across from that person and those tears usually begin to fall, then we are using that past, that experience, as our greatest jewel. And with that, I pass. Thanks. Thank you, Leah. And this is Monica, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Ditto, ditto, ditto to everything that Leah just said. She so clearly here, the suffering that we go through, the way, and it's just like show him from your experience how the queer mental condition surrounding that first drink prevents normal functioning of the willpower. And that's just what Leah was saying. I have an alcoholic mind. And when it comes to that first drink, my mind is not functioning normally. It's functioning abnormally in this area. I have an alcoholic mind. And I remember when I finally dawned on me what that meant, one day I was like, oh my God. Just like in the big book here, and that guy says, oh my God. I have an alcoholic mind. There's something wrong in the way I process this particular thinking. It's not my fault. It's the way it is. But I must take action. I have responsibilities. And there's a way out. And that's what we're trying to give you all. There's hope. There's a solution. And there's a way out of this. It's called a power greater than us that can overrule that insane thinking, that insane thought that pops into my mind, and I think that's just the best idea I've had all day or all week or all month to pick up something again because I don't remember the consequences. There's something missing up there, you know? I don't know if it's chemical, biological, or what, but, you know, Monica's got an alcoholic mind. But what's more important even than that is we have a solution. There is a way out. And with that, um, we've got another couple of minutes. Would anyone else like to comment on this paragraph before we close? Rabia? Rabia. Go ahead, Rabia. Hi, everybody. This is Rabia. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from New York. And thank you, everyone, for all of your sharing. And, and, I, and what's really popping out at me is don't, at this stage, refer to this book unless he has seen it and wishes to discuss it. And I just want my own personal experience right now is I am so relieved with these precise directions of this book. This is all I want to refer to. I've spent decades in OA not following these precise directions and living in ego even when I thought I was living in 10, 11, and 12. And 
either thinking I knew the answers to everybody's recovery or else in that same ego, I didn't know enough, so I couldn't do the service that was required of me. And and so here I have these precise directions, and I only refer to this book. I am like, that's all I talk about now. That's all I go to now, that every single answer to the solution of compulsive overeating is in this book. And, it, and it's not my head language anymore. It's like not my thinking. And I'm so relieved in the humility to know this is the solution, this is the answer, and there's so many sick and suffering people in the rooms of OA who they're not at the initial stages, they're in the, the suffering stage. And so the only message I'm carrying right now is this beautiful big book and, and the uh, message of recovery that all of you talk about every morning. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Rabia. And thank you to everyone who has shared. We will now close with the reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. And Karen, can you please read for us from A Vision for You? Yes, Monica, here I am. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God, admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.